We are teaching out of Revelation, and uh, we're going section by section. And so last week, uh, there were two chapters that addressed seven different uh, letters to churches, and we just read seven verses because there was some redundancy in that. Um, and so we read seven verses out of two chapters. Today, we're reading the whole two chapters. Um, this next section um, is about vision. It's a vision that John has. John is writing this. He's... Uh, He's in exile on the island of uh, Patmos and uh, for his uh, faith and his Christianity, and uh, he has this vision. And so it begins with this, uh, you know, Jesus addressing him, this vision of Christ, then these letters to the churches, and there's, and I love that because God sees all the good things they do, but also there's some criticism that goes forth as well, um, and God sees that too, and uh, but from here on out, the church is stellar uh, in the rest of the book. It's all about the church suffering and, and God's victory. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking about this, and one of the things that uh, I used to do more of is uh, read before I go to bed, read novels. Uh, for me, uh, a good novel is uh, something that's artistic and very well done. Is uh, It's almost like a spiritual discipline. It, 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 it's good for my soul. And uh, over time, I stopped reading as much, and I realized that, you know, it happens gradually over time, but what happened is uh, I couldn't see anymore. I couldn't read the, the, the words anymore. I could see, but I couldn't see the words, and it was getting harder and harder, so I just kept uh, letting that slide. So I went to, um, what do you call it, the ophthalmologist? The eye doctor. The eye doctor, yeah. <laughs> went to the eye doctor. And uh, I'm just really struggling to be able to see and just read. And uh, uh, I, I go through this thing, and they got to touch your eye. I hate that. I can't. <laughs> who, can, who, who closes their eye underwater? Yeah, I can't stand. I, cannot, I never do that. Anyway, they got to like. <laughs> and we're done, and they're like, you have 20-20 vision. <laughs> I want a second opinion, right? Because that... <laughs> There's no way I have 20-20 vision. And then they begin to explain that I do have 20-20 vision. It's just that uh, as you age, uh, you know, the, the, the lens isn't as flexible. And that's the issue. And what I need are cheap, you know, reading glasses. So I go out and I get the reading glasses. And you get different, you know, magnification. I, this is just like 1.5. And I put those things on and it's like... Holy mackerel, I can see. I can, like, this is great. I couldn't believe it. I was like, it was a game changer. Like, I can read now and I can see and the world is bright and everything's looking good. You know, until dinner time the next day and between dinner time and bedtime. But um, <clears throat> it was a game changer. Everything um, I, I was just able to see. And the downside is that then your, your eye gets used to that and it gets worse. <laughs> But with the glasses on, it's fantastic. And it was like a whole new uh, appreciation for reading and seeing and all that. And what's happening in Re Revelation is uh, the author is trying to give us a very clear vision. He's trying to give the first century church a very clear vision because they are struggling. And there's two primary ways they are struggling. Number one is that the church is being persecuted. Those who are faithful, those who are very strong in their faith 
are suffering. And I mentioned last week that, you know, in that world, if I'm going to go over to that shopping complex, I got an offer. I got to offer like incense to the God of Lowe's and Walmart over there before I go and shop. So as a Christian, it's a very difficult time. You know, do you do that? Uh, can you find food elsewhere? Um, and there's a lot of pressure on them to um, compromise their faith. And so it's written to those who are being persecuted and trying to give them a vision uh, for what is going on and what God is up to. Where is God in all of this? But also uh, there are people that are tempted to compromise their faith. And it's a vision for them to see that, listen, uh, behind all of this shiny stuff at Walmart is a dragon that is waiting to eat you. Um, and so it uses images and these uh, bold uh, images to convey that. And one of the things that, um, you know, this is a matter of discipleship. This is a matter of following Jesus and being faithful uh, to Christ. Um, and so uh, part of what John is doing is just get, trying to give them a clear vision of their own um, belovedness, that they are loved. And I feel like that doesn't do it justice because we, we hear that all the time in church. Jesus loves it. God for so loved the world. You know, he gave his only begotten son. We hear it all the time that we are loved. And the reason we have to, you know, you have page and page and page trying to communicate this to us is because we don't believe it. We don't. <laughs> Deep down, we struggle with that. And when we're not acting out of that sense of love, um, we're acting out of a sense of uh, trying to take or trying to build myself up or pride or arrogance or hurt for other people so that I feel better about myself. It comes out all these different ways. And so a clear vision of our own belovedness, our own being loved, is at the heart of you know, what it means to follow Jesus. And we get a vision for that this morning. It might not seem like it on the surface, but that's what's going on here. We'll, we'll talk about that. So um, we're going to read through two different two chapters, chapter four and five. And uh, John, after these letters, after he's, in, he's instructed to write these letters uh, to the church, he has this vision. And so we start in at Revelation four. <clears throat> and actually, there's not a there's not a ton to unpack here, um, except for the little symbols that might not be clear to us, and we'll just illuminate those as we go. Uh, John writes, then, as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. So first of all, what I love is that the door to heaven is open. And that seems very inviting to me. That seems like, uh, you know, this is a vision that he's having. It's specific to that. But I love that imagery that the throne room to God is open. Um, and we read passages like that. Come to God boldly with your prayers, right? Um, <clears throat> come up and I will show you what must happen after this. So now he had this vision of what is, and he writes all these churches, and now we're going to see what is to be, right? Instantly, I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. This would not be surprising. that They believe that the throne room of God was in the heavens, and when he's in the spirit, he doesn't go anywhere, but he's just all of a sudden uh, his vision and uh, what he sees is transformed before him. Um, <clears throat> the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper, 
carnelian. So these are red. I think these are reddish stones. And he has this uh, vision of emeralds and this brilliant shining lights like jasper. Um, and the glow of the emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Um, I think emeralds are green, but you have this image of multiple colors all around. So he's just being ushered in, and I believe that he's just trying to just trying to come up with words to try to figure out to explain what he's saying. And he's probably grasping at straws, but doing the best that he can. You know, this rainbow with all these colors. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. So the very first thing is this, this brilliant light. And so I think what's being conveyed is the glory of God. We read about that in the Old Testament. We read about it in the New Testament, this idea that God is glorious, and there's this light, and we hear about it as the Shekinah glory in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but he's, he's seeing this brilliance emanating from this throne. And then he goes on and says, there's other, these 24 thrones around the throne in the middle. And there's 24 elders sitting on them. Uh, <clears throat> and most of the commentaries I read thought, you know, was, was uh, saying that the 12 tribes of Israel is really important, the 12 in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and then you have your 12 apostles in the New Testament. And so this represents not just Israel, but it represents uh, the New Testament as well and all people being uh, welcomed. Um, and it's symbolized by these 12 and 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12, uh, they're envisioned they're as individuals, but it's representing something uh, bigger than that. Uh, they were clothed in white and had gold crowns. So these are rulers in their hands, in their, on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, right? We sang Revelation song a few weeks ago that talks about this. So this is drawing up images of uh, we see about, you know, like I think of Elijah, where he's uh, kind of trying to escape his call and ministry, and he's, he's in the mountain, and there's uh, fire, and there's wind, and there's uh, Moses on the mountain. He's receiving the uh, commandments, and there's lightning and fire and wind. And so this is a theophany. This is, this is where God shows up in this powerful way. So all these images uh, to the people who are familiar with uh, scripture would be like, okay, yeah, I know that image. I know that image. I know, the, I know what that's symbolizing. And it's a presence of God and in this really uh, incredibly powerful way. Um, in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. And you see that throughout this book representing the Spirit of God and the church. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. And in, uh, in Solomon's temple, right, with all the carving in there, there's a lot of garden images. And one of the things that are outside this court of worship, out by the altar, is this huge basin of water. And it was called the sea. And the purpose of that, I believe, is that when we go back to the very opening, you know, you know where I'm going, the opening words of the Bible, of the, of the story, is uh, there was uh, welter and waste. There was uh, tohu vabohu, it rhymes, and the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the deep. And the picture is that this, before creation, is this watery, 
ball of chaos. And the Spirit of God comes in and begins to separate light from darkness and earth from sea, and animals for the sea and animals for the air and animals for the ground, and everything gets sorted. And, it's this, and the idea is that when the sea is calm, it's a symbol that uh, chaos does not rule. God rules over the chaos. And we see that right off, the very opening phrases from the Bible, which are very hopeful because that's deep down, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's what you want. God to rule over the chaos, the chaos around you, the chaos that we inflict on each other. Um, we want someone that's powerful enough to come in and to quell that. And so in Israel's worship, in their court, is this giant basin where it's smooth as glass. And so John has this vision of that glass. And so this is, a, this is a community that is suffering. This is a community that is experiencing chaos. This is a community that's asking lots of questions. Where are you? How long? Um, you know, God, give us an answer. And John gets this vision of this shiny glass. It's like sea, and it's still. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. I brought out, I didn't bring it today, but I have uh, the book of Revelation in a, in a graphic novel form, and these creatures are hideous with all these eyes, you know. Um, but you have four living creatures representing the created order, all of things, you know, all the created order that there is. Um, and then they're covered with eyes, which is uh, kind of a symbol of wisdom, all-seeing, abundantly uh, aware of what's around them. <clears throat> covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a human face, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and now we're reminded of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is called. He's in the temple. There's smoke all around, and there's these beings with six wings flying around. Who can we send? Who can we send? All right, where did I leave off here? Uh, each of these had six wings, and their wings were covered with eyes, inside and out. Day after day, night after night, they keep on singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is from Isaiah 6. The one who always was, who is, and is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, which is interesting because they all have thrones, so they're all rulers, yet they are bowing down to this throne in this vision of heaven. The one who lives forever and ever, they uh, lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. And so this is a brilliant um, vision of God on, on, you know, on his throne, being worshipped by all creation, being represented by all creation. And it's this, it's this vision that I don't think John can, I think it's mind-boggling, and that he's doing the best he can to try to describe it. Getting pieces, bits and pieces. Yeah, trying to keep up. Yeah, trying to keep up. So he goes on in the next 
section, in the next chapter, it says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. All right? So this king figure, God, has this scroll in his hand. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. This comes from Ezekiel. And, it, and inside the scroll is, is something to be revealed. It's, a ju it's judgment. It's justice. It's the king's going to read uh, how the king is going to make things right in the world. That's what would happen in the, you know, the ancient days. King has this scroll, and they got to break it open. But um, the writing's on the front and the back, and that comes from Ezekiel, and it just means that what's written in there, the revelation in this scroll isn't just a great revelation. It's, an over, it's a really, really important revelation. Um, <clears throat> it was writing on the inside and out, the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. So you have something that's sealed, and it's delivered to the king, and only the one who's able, who has the authority to break that seal, um, should open it, right? You don't want to open it. If, you're, if it's for the king, and you open it, just, oh, I think I'll just take the, the steam to this and see what's written. You, that's, that's bad, right? And only the person that can do the seal is, and this got seven seals. So it's very important that we get the right person to open this. And this is, this is representing justice and judgment. And when we say judgment, we always feel like that's a bad thing. You know, it's one of those things about the Bible. We just like, in our modern world, we don't like to talk about that judgment. But we got to understand that the church in this century, they are victims. They are struggling. Judgment is good. <laughs> They want God to be a just judge. They want God to bring judgment so that they are vindicated, so that uh, they can thrive in life, you know, and, and they can have the kind of life that God desired when he created the world in that beautiful picture in Genesis 1 and 2. And so there's this scroll with judgment. And so for John, who's, who's in exile? Here's a guy in exile. Yes, we, please read it. Please open it. Right? There's this anticipation. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? And that's the question that's hanging over this whole thing, the whole vision. Who is worthy, over the whole book, who is worthy to open it? There's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who's able to open the scroll and read it. So there's this feeling of, how long? You know, how long do we suffer? <clears throat> I began to weep bitterly. That's the response. If no one's able to open this, this is going to go on and on and on. And as Will mentioned when he started this, there's just tons of Christians where this is a reality for them. They don't, they're not sitting with the door open. In our world, you know, I mean, the center of Christianity isn't in America. <laughs> it's not in Europe anymore. It's out on the margins. Right? It's in India and China and Africa. 
That's where the church is exploding. And in lots of places, you can't stand there with the door open, advertised with a big sign, when you're meeting. This is a reality for our brothers and sisters that we really probably need to be more aware of. And so he's weeping. This is sad. This is not good news. We hear all about the good news. This is not good news. I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. And this is setting the world to right. No one's worthy to do that. Partly because I'm at fault. I, I, I'm part of the problem. Even as a Christian, whatever, living in this world, I am part of the problem. I know it's shocking to you all, but I'm in process of becoming more like Christ, but I'm not there yet. And so no one's worthy to do it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, and here John is hearing, he's hearing this, stop weeping. Look to the lion of the tribe of Judah. The heir to David's throne has won the victory. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. He's able to bring justice. And this is calling back to David, King David, the lion of Judah. And John is hearing this. Someone is saying it. And so now there's some hope. But then he turns and looks. And so now we get the sensation of seeing. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. This is not what a lion looks like. (laughs) You're expecting a king on a war horse. Someone defeating. Someone majestic. And what he sees is a lamb. Cute little lamb that's been slaughtered. A lamb that should be dead, but it's standing. It's been slain. But it's now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders. He had seven horns, a symbol of power. Seven eyes, again, a symbol of wisdom and understanding which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. He stepped forward, took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang, not an old song, they sang a new song. A new song. So this is really interesting because we get this picture of this throne room, and yet the one on the throne, all the worship is going now to this lamb. Everyone's worshiping the lamb, not the one on the throne. And they're singing a new song. There's something new coming. There's hope. You are worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals and open it. You were slaughtered and your blood was ransomed, people, for God. His blood bought people back for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. 
No one's left out. There's no privilege. There's no, you know, what do you, uh, I'm drawing a blank. The seating in the front of the plane, right? First, first class, right? No, it's all class, everyone. Or I should say everyone's in first class on this. And break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood was ransomed for people from every nation and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests. This is looking back to Exodus. All of this is looking back to Hebrew Bible imagery. Kingdom of priests. The priest stands in between God and the people. And here we have this vision that these people that have been bought back are to stand as priests, as mediators between God and the world. And, and yet, in this world, they're the ones that are suffering. They're the ones that are struggling. They're the ones that are being persecuted, that are being cut down. But that's the, that's the image, that they are the mediators. When I looked again, I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne of the living beings and the elders, and they sang with a mighty chorus. This whole thing is getting bigger and bigger. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under heaven and in the sea they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne to the lamb forever and ever. The four living beings said, Amen. Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. This is a lot of the Revelation song comes right out of this, which is pretty cool. Right. So he has this vision. And it's shocking because it's a Lamb, alone a Lamb. Wouldn't seem to be the image you would choose to bring salvation to the earth. But it's a lamb that was slain and is still alive. It goes back to Passover. Right. It's a Passover lamb. And so this is mind-boggling. Who's, who here has been to, since we're talking about vision and seeing and glasses, who's been to the Grand Canyon? Anyone? Once. You guys just were there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Got down. Yeah. So we went a few years ago. This is about four or five years ago now, six years ago. And I've seen pictures. I've seen pictures where the lighting is fantastic, the shadows are amazing, the angle is perfect, and it's beautiful. And then you go there, and you look at it, and you're like, there's nothing that can capture this. There's no picture good enough. And it's because it's beyond just the colors or the lighting or the angle or whatever. It's beyond. There's something going on there that's bigger than that. And it's how enormous the canyon is. It's mind-boggling. It almost plays tricks on your mind. Remember the old magic eye where you had to, like, defocus your eye and get the picture? Yeah. And then it gives you a headache. And It was kind of like that. Not the headache part, but, I mean, it's so enormous. That you're like, I'm going to take a picture, but that's dumb. It's just, it's not going to capture it. John's having one of those moments. 
And at the heart of it isn't the gems. It's not the great song. It's a lamb that's slaughtered. And this is something that's so hard to wrap our minds around in our world and in our culture. I did it, I, I did it again. I read a meme on Facebook. And I had to process this. I went out with Lisa. She's the one that blew my mind with her thoughts on it. And I said, I, I said, I don't, I don't, there's, I don't, I can't wrap my mind around what's going on because I read, you read these things and it talks about distancing yourself from people that don't see you and all that self care. And there's a part of me that's, that, that resonates so deeply, particularly coming out of the last few years, the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and things coming to light where people have suffered. I think that it's so good that we're in a culture that is more mindful of those kind of things. And that's good. And I read that and I think, gosh, that's a great reminder. That's a great tool. That's something, that's something good to do. And yet at the same time, I think of Jesus who wraps his arms around his enemies. He does not distance himself. And I've been wrestling with that so much. I should have gone out to dinner with Lisa a long time ago so I could understand this. And she said, you know, those things are action steps that are to, you know, part, part of what they do is they, they help us to believe that we are loved and we deserve to be loved. And we're really trying to convince ourselves that we don't have to take it. What does that have to do with Jesus? Jesus, he comes from a place where he knows that he's loved. He comes from a place where that is not even a question that he is loved, right? To go back to his, his baptism. Behold my son and who I'm so, I love him so much. He comes from a place where that is so solid that he can embrace his tormentor. Because I've been wrestling with this in this post Me Too movement, or hopefully it's not post, it's still, yeah, and how do you preach a message that is forgiving your enemies, loving those? We got to be so convinced of our love, that we're so loved, because that's how Mother Teresa is able to love. That's how uh, Martin Luther King is able to love. That's how Desmond Tutu is, is able to uh, bring uh, people together that uh, are on a opposite ends of a great racial divide with lots of violence. That's how people, and there's plenty of others. There's school bus drivers and teachers and moms and dads and, you know, people at Walmart. We meet people like that. It just emanates from them. And Jesus comes from that place in a perfect way. And those things that I read, are they're trying to get there. <laughs> and they're good. Do that, you know, take care of yourself. But it's Jesus that has ransomed people for God, that has suffered and died and was able to do that, was able to embrace a woman who was suffering for 12 years, someone who's not even Israelite. He's able to minister to her and he's able to go to the, the wealthy uh, Jewish man who is taking taxes in this corrupt system, Zacchaeus, and embrace him as well. 
person who's stealing money from his own people. They both have an encounter. And it's because Jesus comes from that place. And so this is, this is the message of the Bible, page after page after page, that for me, it's just slow getting there, that God loves me. And that is the foundation for this hope and the judgment. That's the answer for the person that's being persecuted, that if you are fully uh, rooted in God's love for you, it's not that the persecution doesn't matter, that we don't pursue justice, but that that's your hope. That's your foundation. That's your peace. That's your person. Yeah, that's your peace. Everything flows from that. And for the Christians in this world that are uh, tempted to uh, compromise their faith, there's nothing worth that. There's nothing that the empire can offer you that is as good as that. A lamb who was slaughtered for us, slain for us, who loved us so much, that is so convinced of God's love for him that he's able to then turn it out and give it to anyone who comes. Right. Go back to that lesson we did a long time ago, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Takes away the sin of the world. This vision... Uh, this is the heart of discipleship, that we understand this vision and we pursue it. That we learn over and over. We read these stories over and over. We, read, you know, we, we, read, we know the, the, the Good Shepherd passage from John 10, but we need to read it again. That we are loved. That God loves you. And the idea here, this kingdom of priests, is that the, the church then can go out and be that light to a world. And the stepping on, the, the on-ramp here, it doesn't matter if you live in Maine. It doesn't matter if you're living in Africa or China or you know, other persecuted places. That that is the hope that people so desperately want. Right? So the invitation and the challenge is always there. Enter into that relationship wholeheartedly. Believe that you are loved by God, by the creator of the world, and that God is willing to go to the ends of the, wor the world to, for you, for you. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay, let's, let's pray. God, I, f I feel like I'm taking a picture of the Grand Canyon. Uh, I feel like we're reading that. That what John sees, he's trying to put into words, and his words are even better than mine. I just don't know how to get this across. It's something that we experience. I pray that for those here who are in that relationship with you, who probably haven't experienced that for a long time, that breakthrough, where they just feel that sense of love overwhelm them, I pray for our congregation that they would feel it. I pray that our moms would feel it and our kids would feel it today and our, our dads as well. And for those who have never entered into that relationship, I pray that they would give you a chance. That the world would realize that all that it can come up with, even if it's good, doesn't measure up to 
the love that you have to offer. All the good that the world offers up are good tools, but they are not the foundation. They are not our hope. That Jesus is our hope. And I pray we leave with a solid understanding of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our reading, our reading from uh, the New Testament beyond Revelation is Acts chapter 9. There was a believer in Joppa named Tabitha. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial, laid in the upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at at Lydda. And so they uh, sent two men to beg him. Please come as soon as possible. So Peter returned with them. And as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and the other clothes Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them all to leave the room. And he knelt. And he prayed, turning to the body. He said, get up, Tabitha. She opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called to the widows and the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread through the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon a tanner of hides. What a beautiful picture of life. I love that they mentioned he stayed with a tanner of hides, a person who tans hides, because being Jewish, that would have made him unclean, being around a dead animal. Uh, But the whole thing, the whole story is a picture of life out of death. Let's sing. Let's get those kids and sing together. Get on to our celebrations today.